So this evening, I would like to follow a little from Stephen, who talked about the awakening of the Buddha. He gave us some impression about it. And so I'd like to look at tonight at mystical states, insight and awakening. And in a way, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for our practice? What does it mean in our life? And first I like to, what I want to talk first about mystical states is often I have this impression that we sit in meditation waiting for something special to happen. I think that we spend our time waiting. I think we kind of, it's like waiting for a bus. As somebody was telling me, you sit here and wait and wait. And often one is quite disappointed because nothing happens. But it is true. It is true that sometimes we can experience what I would call mystical state. It's a state where it's generally very exciting, very special. We feel extremely different. And also it is generally quite intense. It can last for a few seconds. It can last for a few minutes. It can last for some days. I think, again, there is no criteria. I think it very much depends on many different conditions. But to me, I would say, in a way, that the meditation, the aim of the practice of, of the path, is not just to get mystical state. Of course, I think, if we experience mystical state, but some of us might never experience mystical state. I think one has to be very careful about that. But it doesn't mean that then one practice is not worth it. I think personally, I think it seems to me it's more like a byproduct of the practice. And so, of course, we feel differently. I think it kind of, it's interesting for us to feel that differently. It is also very nurturing sometimes. But what we have to be careful is that it seems to me that the state in itself, a lot of the time, is not enough. I mean, I had a friend. She had an amazing mystical experience in the Ganges when she was 25. When I met her, she was 60. And all that time, she had tried to recreate that exact experience. And so far, she had not managed it. But to me, this is not just what the practice is about. It's not we might experience one or not. But if we experience such a state, to me, the, actually, the challenge is not to experience it. The challenge is actually to integrate it in our life. Because sometimes you can have a, the most amazing experience, and it will not do anything to change your patterns, your mental patterns, your emotional pattern, certain physical patterns. So in a way, to, to kind of in a way be aware of that. Then there is insight. And again, when we, we might not necessarily have insight, but generally it seems in the course of the meditation process, we have insight. But what are insights? What is interesting with insights is that 
you see something experientially that you have never seen before. It's kind of like, wah! And it's interesting, you, you are the same person with the same experience, but totally you see something you have never seen before. And at that level, you cannot unknow it. You know it. But at the same time, you cannot know it as when you had the insight. Because when you have the insight, it's totally new. It's totally fresh. You've never seen the world in that way before. But it seems to me what happened with insight is that after that, it's more like a memory. But in a way, it's memory that we can remember that we have seen the world that way. And that actually, again, the inside has to be cultivated, has to be integrated. I would say for myself, if I can talk about my insight, <laughs> the first one I had, you could only nearly say was a non-insight. Because <laughs> generally we would... We, in a way, it's interesting because when we think of inside, we kind of have this idea of kind of, you know, again, this kind of, you know, you see something amazing, you know. And I feel that I saw something amazing, but maybe not what generally we expect when we meditate. And I'm not, I had not meditated, I mean, I was meditating in Korea as a nun, 10 hours a day for a few months at a time. And that was my second such three months retreat. Maybe it was a month in the retreat and I was sitting there doing what we do in Korea, which is ask a question. And suddenly, I realized I was totally (laughs) self-centered. Until that moment... I was 22. I thought, I mean, uh, from the age of 11, I wanted to save the world. I wanted to become the president of the republic to save France. (laughs) Then I downgraded my aspiration. (laughs) And in a way, I thought I was so compassionate. I had this idea I was such a compassionate person. But in that moment of meditation, I realized I was totally self-centered. I would say 98% at that time. Because everything I thought, everything I felt, everything I planned was for my own benefit. But the insight, in a way, did not give me despair. I just thought, wow, isn't it weird? to do this. And then I looked around me and I was at the time meditating with four other ladies in a small room and I saw that they were exactly the same. I mean, we all aspired to awakening but we were all totally self-centered. And I realized that when we our self-centeredness coincided, we were quite harmonious. (laughs) If it did not, then it became a little more problematic. 
And I thought it was so funny. I thought, wow, this is the way it works. This is the way we work as human beings. And so in a way, after that, it doesn't mean that my self-centeredness went, but I knew it. And then in a way, I could try to integrate that seeing and try to diminish the self-centeredness so it could come down to this more toward the 50%. Because I don't think that meditation is about the 0%. Because you have 50%, you have to take care of yourself. Nobody will do it for you. But at least we can go a little further down than the 98. So in a way, that insight is something that I, in a way, I'm still working on. It's something that I think I will work on to integrate it the whole of my life. So I think, in a way, we have to see that the mystical state or the insight is generally often very brief. And then after that, we really, in a way, have to integrate it. We have to, in a way, bring it in our daily life. So it can actually make a difference toward us being locked into our pattern. I remember when I was, before I became a nun, when I was still in France and I was about 19, and I was very interested in the meditation. And in those days, this was the 70s, there was not that many books, but there was books of Krishnamurti. So that's what I was going to do, just like he said. So one day I decided I would go to the mountain with a blanket and just with Krishnamurti, I would fast so that I would not have to worry about food and I would get it. I would do it, just like he said. So I go up the mountain with my blanket and the first day I sit in the field. I am in the Alps. It's beautiful, beautiful field, meadow, And I sit there and I read the book where he talks about awareness. Be aware. So I put the book down. (laughs) I read again. Be aware. I did this for a day and decided it did not work. I could not experience what he said. So I went down the mountain and I gave that up and then turned toward Buddhist meditation where it gives you a few tools to try to accomplish this. And now it's very easy to be aware. I can do it, I mean, this is in a way, in most of the time, my natural way of being, I am aware because that's something which becomes natural as you practice meditation. But now I realize that being aware is not enough. It's not enough to be aware. You actually have to be creatively engaged with what you are aware of. So again, in a way, the seeing is not enough. We have to move from that seeing. And if I think of my teacher, Master Kuzan, whom I studied under for nine years in Korea, he was reputed to have had three awakenings. I mean, you might think one would be enough. (laughs) 
but he had three. And on the third one, he went to his teacher, because that's what you do in Korea. You, you have a, an insight, an awakening, and then you go to your teacher, and then you write a poem. And then the teacher says, yes, you passed or you did not pass. And when he saw his poem the third time, the teacher said to him, now I will be your disciple. So in a way, the teacher recognized that my master cousin had more actually understanding than he himself had reached, which I think is a kind of very beautiful moment. But the fact that he had three awakening did not stop him from practicing. Because often I have this feeling that we're sitting in meditation thinking, when finally I get awakened, I become enlightened like a Christmas tree, (laughs) then finally all my problems will be resolved. And then I can put my feet up and I can take up golf for a change. (laughs) Then I'll be outside, breathe the fresh air. But what was interesting with Master Cousin was that actually to the last day of his life, the last minute of his life, he meditated. I, was, I traveled with him. I was his translator two or three times when we traveled abroad. And in the train, in the boat, in the plane, he would sit in meditation and he would look at me. I would be reading my paper. (laughs) And he would sit in meditation, and then he would sleep, actually, sitting in meditation. I would say to him, Master, Master, wouldn't you be more comfortable, you know, kind of just sitting, you know, not being in this posture. He said, oh, it tastes so much better. So in a way, in, I mean, he would also meditate awake, but, (laughs) you know, He was getting a little tired in his old age. And to me, this was a great, kind of very inspiring to see him, to to really see that kind of like just that sitting continuously, that walking, that kind of cultivation did not stop, even though he had had such great awakening and insight. And before he died, a few months before he died, I was very moved because we went walking because he felt a little unwell. And so when he felt unwell, he wanted to walk, to kind of exercise a bit. So we went together. And then he sat on the trunk and he said to me, you know, you never know how you're going to be when you die. At the moment of death, you have no idea how you're going to be. Are you going to be afraid? How are you going to be at ease? Even I, I don't know how I'm going to be. So we have to meditate so that we are ready at any moment. And to me, that was very humbling. It kind of showed me in a way that the the meditation, the practice is for all our life. It's not just to get a certain state or a certain insight. Another thing that, in a way, impressed me about my teacher, and in a way why I stayed there for 
10 years until he died, was that one of his great emphasis in terms of the practice of the meditative path was that we needed, I mean, every talk nearly talked about that, that we are needed to cultivate the three trainings together, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Ethics was not enough. Meditation only was not enough. Wisdom only was not enough. That in a way we had to cultivate the three together because in a way each helped each other to develop even more. And what I could see is that in his life, he was totally ethical. I mean, I traveled with him. I was in all kinds of situations with him. Even we even went to Las Vegas together. <laughs> you know, because he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's monk, he has a monk disciple who told him, you must go to Las Vegas to see the lights. Because <laughs> at that time in Korea, it was very dark in the night. So we all kind of try go to Las Vegas and Master Cousin sees the lights. Okay. Now, let's go to bed. <laughs> and, you know, and I could see he was, he was, in a way, there was this great integrity that actually his life was not just about meditation, about a certain state, but it was about his own way of being, about this kind of ethical way of being, this wise way of being. And to me, that's why we have to be careful when we own the meditative path, that is, it is about meditation, of course, but it's not only about meditation and not only about meditation achievement. Because in a way, I remember I was living in this community and we had in the community for a little while this teacher. And he was a great teacher. He was, he was a man who had studied the text and really knew the text and could explain the text to you in a most beautiful way. I learned a lot from that person. Also, he had a great meditative state when he studied in Asia. He was also known for that. He also did therapy. So you could think, wow, that person, you know, must be sorted. Actually, there was, he had this great trouble. He could not, in a way, be aware of others. He could not be aware of the effect he had on others. There was this totally blind spot. And it taught me that meditation can reach certain bits, but it takes a long time to reach everywhere. And one of the things you used to do was to go and help with great compassion one of our friends who was dying of leukemia. And so I would keep an eye for him doing that. Because he would go to my friend and he would say, isn't it great that you are dying? Isn't it great? You can look at impermanence, you can look at death, you can have great insight. Isn't it wonderful? So as soon as he, I mean, I could not stop him going into the room, but as soon as he had left the room, I would go into the room because I would know my friend would be so 
angry. <laughs> he would be fuming. I mean, he was a Buddhist of a long, long standing. But he wanted to live. He had this rage to live. I'd never seen somebody who wanted to live so much, who fought so much to live. 15 years, he fought leukemia. It was amazing. And personally, I wanted him to live. If he wanted to live that much, I wanted him to be there for him. So then I would generally spend 20 minutes to kind of calm him down (laughs) after the visit of this famous teacher. And so in a way, to be careful, to be careful that in a way, meditative state, insights, sometimes are not enough to fully reach all the part of the person. Or we can look at, in a way, sometimes some of the problems that there seems to be with some teachers who, again, they speak very well, they have great insight, they have great meditative state, and they have all this sexual difficulty, or they get into difficulty with their sexuality because they kind of, you know, kind of have all uh, sex with a lot of their disciples without, anyway, kind of gets a bit complicated. And you think, but why do they do this? I mean, generally it's found out, generally it becomes difficult, generally it's kind of a bad idea. (laughs) So, I mean, why do they do it? And it seems to me it's a little of an ethical thing. And it's the Buddha, if you read any text of the Buddha, again, I'm reading the Anguttara Nikaya at the moment, again and again he said, lust. Problem with lust. (laughs) And it's a very strong drive. And I don't think it's one or two inside or one or two meditative states who are going to, in a way, dissolve that power of that lust. Or the fact that you just want to crack, in a way, to use your power for your own benefit. Or just the fact that, in a way, you totally disregard the autonomy of the other person. So that's why at that level, I find there is a framework in the Theravada tradition which personally, as a Zen person, I really found really useful. And this is the four stages of awakening, as proposed, suggested by the Buddha. And I find them very interesting, because I think it shows, in a way, all the things we have to work with. And how, in a way, the process of awakening is not the process of gaining something. But that actually the process of awakening is a process of dissolving. That's why when you look at the four stages, actually you're told what goes. You're not told what you get. You're told what goes. And so the first stage, which is called stream entry, and Stephen will talk more about it tomorrow, three things goes. Belief in self, rights and ritual. And doubt. Can you start again? The four? The, the four? Yeah. Well, I'm just starting with the first. Okay. <laughs> I didn't get the first. Well, okay, the first is called generally stream entry. And stream entry. And in it, there is three things that goes belief in self. Rights and belief in rites and rituals and doubt. Belief in self. I think 
you know, and often this stream entry nowadays is kind of like it's this amazing thing that none of us is going to get. <laughs> but actually, you will listen to, to Stephen, and Stephen, and again and again, is going to say, ah, King Bimbisara listened to the Buddha, and he got stream entry. And his aunt listened to it, she got it too. And his papa listened to it, and he got it too. <laughs> so lots of people get it. You might say this is because of the Buddha. Or it could be because it's something that all of us, if we meditate a bit, can get. The fact that, I mean, if we see it enough, we know there is not a fixed self. Because we can see, you know, one minute we think this, next minute we feel this, next minute we have this sensation, next minute we're in New York, next minute we're here. I mean, you know, we look at ourselves in the morning and we look very fresh, evening, and you know, is this the same person, you know? So in a way, over time, we realize that actually we are, what the best way to say it is that actually we are a flow of conditions, flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And so as the inner condition shift and the outer condition shift, then in a way we shift. But it doesn't mean that we totally shift all the time. I doubt that tomorrow morning I will be an elephant. <laughs> this is, I think, relatively <laughs> unlikely. There is a certain stability of the condition. So in a way, to see that this belief in self going is more for us to see that we're actually more than we think we are. That, in a way, to me, meditation is a discovery of conditions. The condition that forms us and the condition that influences and how we can influence to these conditions. So that, what happens? And then, belief in rites and ritual. I think we really have to see this in context. When we see this, rites and ritual, no problem. I can let it be, you know. But actually, in this time, for, a, for someone in the Buddha's time, to let go of belief in rite and ritual, this really was something. Because they believed that rites and rituals kept them pure, which was the most important thing. And secondly, that it kept the universe going. If you did not do the proper ritual, you would be impure and the universe would collapse. And so in a way, one could say this is magical thinking. And in a way, the Buddha is telling you that if you cultivate mindfulness, actually at some point, you will let go of magical thinking. It doesn't mean that you won't do rites and rituals, because as a group, sometimes it's nice to do rites and rituals. And it can have many devotional aspects. We can be useful for people. But I think the Buddha was meaning more that the way you felt and the way you acted did not depend on rite and rituals. But it depended more on what you did within the context of wisdom and compassion. That was his bottom line. Then doubt. I think doubt again. If we meditate, the meditation, in a way, that's why there is a schedule. And that's why I'm sitting with you. Why do I sit with you? Because 
I have total faith in the practice. It works. So I want to do it too. I don't just want you to do it. I want to benefit also from it. And it seems to me that at some point, at the beginning we do meditation because our friend do it, because it should be good for us, because they promised I would get that. But at one point, we do meditation because we know for ourselves that it is useful. If it is not, then I mean, do something else. (laughs) Definitely. So in a way, that's what doubt goes. Because you know for yourself that it works. That actually grasping goes. And again and again you, ah, I don't get stuck anymore there. Because of that releasing that comes from meditation. Then there is a next one, which actually the next stage, the second stage, is the weakening of greed and hatred. And personally, I think this is a state that we also at times can experience, when actually the exaggeration of the wanting disappears, and the exaggeration of the rejecting disappears. When you stop being compulsively, I want this, and if I don't have it, my life is finished. When you stop having this, it's kind of like a bodily sensation. I want this. And in the same way, the bodily sensation, I hate this. I cannot stand it. I cannot be with this. I had this experience uh, before my grandma died. She was getting a little unwell, and we had to do a lot of things for her. And my mother left because she needed a break, and I said, don't worry, I'll take care of grandma. So I was left grandma and me. And, you know, you have to, I had to close her, I had to take her clothes off, I had to wash her, I had also when she went to the bathroom, I had to check how it was, and maybe wipe her and all that stuff, which was fine. This was totally fine. I had seen how it was done. And so I put her to bed. Next morning, early morning, I go and check on grandma, and she was kind of awake, and I said, okay, we can prepare breakfast. And so I kind of, you know, look at she was sitting on the foot armchair. Then I go to the kitchen. I come back and I realize there is feces, shit everywhere. She actually missed the pot. She's stuck lots on it on her, lots on it on the floor. I have walked in it. I took it to the kitchen and brought it back. And my first reaction is, Ah, (laughs) You know, you see the anger arise. How could she do this? Next, how can I deal with this? And then I thought, well, okay, it's there. How can you handle it? In that moment, I let go totally of the exaggeration. And I thought, okay, how can I deal with this as it is? I clean grandma took her to the kitchen, gave her breakfast. Meanwhile, I went to clean the thing, da-da-da, and it only took an hour. But when you think of it, you think, oh! But actually, if in the moment you just open in compassion to yourself 
and to the situation, actually you can deal with it. And to me, this is what the Buddha talks about in the second stage. The weakening of the exaggeration. So that starts to disappear. And again, I would say if that doesn't start to disappear, then possibly do something else (laughs) than meditation. (laughs) Then there is a third one. And the third one, greed and hatred totally disappear. It is totally gone. Can you imagine a world where hatred and greed would be totally gone? Can you imagine in yourself a state when there is no greed, no hatred whatsoever? What does it mean? It means that actually there is not that immediate movement of, I am for this, I am against that. Because notice, when you encounter whatever it is, generally we're for it or we're against it. There is this very quick movement. And the way to notice this movement, and that's the way I notice it myself, is when I go down on a Sunday, down to visit my mother who lives downstairs, and for some reason there is a football match or a tennis match on TV, and I look at it, and within 10 seconds, I am for this one and against that one. (laughs) And it's immediate. There is this kind of like... So in a way, looking at that, this I think we can possibly sometime experience very briefly. And then it's amazing experience. You might have experiences in your life or maybe when you sit on retreat. Often I find that so often by the third day, I find I sit there and suddenly there is this feeling of like my heart opening. There being no obstacle to the heart anymore. And the only way I can express it is that in that moment, I have no problem with nobody. None whatsoever. I look on all the world with a very benign. No, everybody is beautiful. Everybody has a Buddha nature. <laughs> and to me, this is very much what the Buddha talks about. And then... There is a fourth one, the fourth stage. And you might think, but what is left? And to me, that's, I love this fourth one. What is left? Conceit is left. Belief in self might have gone, but conceit is still there. Then restlessness is gone. Then ignorance goes. And the conceit is, a, Buddha says, it's a conceit of competition, of comparison. I am superior, I am equal, I am inferior. And this is, again, something we do very automatically. I am better than them, I am worse than them. When we got the internet five years ago, what is the first thing we did? Stephen and I, we went on the internet we put our name in Google to see see, and put his brother's name too. Who would have the most entries? Of course, Stephen had the most. I was second. 
And then the brother was third. <laughs> he might have moved up now. So, you know, it's so natural, that spirit of competition, that spirit of comparison. And it goes. It totally goes. Then there is restlessness. And I think yesterday, Sean has a beautiful image of her sitting on the sofa. And restlessness goes when you sit on the sofa and it is totally fine not to do anything at that moment. That is the going of restlessness for our time. And then there is ignorance. And ignorance is actually the total knowledge. Ignorance goes because you totally know that impermanence, unreliability, and conditionality, you know them experientially. You will never be mistaken about them. And to me, I would say what is so important about that is the fact that when you know impermanence, as when you really know impermanence, compassion arises. Compassion arises for the fleetiness of life, for the preciousness of life. But also, very important, compassion arises because you see the potential in everyone. And you don't fix them. You're always like this. You know that they have the potential at some point to change. The second one, unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, and suffering. To me, again, suffering, knowing suffering is a root of compassion. Because if you know suffering, you know you are alone when you suffer, and you know it is painful. So how can you not have compassion for yourself and others when they, when they suffer? And in the same way, if you really know non-self, conditionality, you actually realize that your life, your survival, depends on everything outside yourself. So how could not you have compassion for what sustains you, for what sustains your life? So in this way, to me, these four stages actually do not discourage me. I don't think, oh, I'll never get there. I think, yeah, I can do this. I can try it. I can experience glimpse of it. And also that it is a lifelong journey. It is for all my life. And in a way, in all my aspect, in all my multi perspectival aspect. So I'll just finish with just a slight quote from a Zen master. And this Zen master is my favorite Zen master, Master Tawe. And Master Tawe used to have lots of relationship writing with lay people. And often they would write to him and he would write back. And here he got this letter. And his disciple a lay disciple is saying, ah, practice is difficult. I am feeling really dim and dull. 
And so this is what Master Tawi says to him, writes to him. Your letter informs me that your rude nature is dim and dull. The one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. <laughs> so we have a little time for uh, questions and comments. Yes? you have presented something which I think is very important. The fact that actually it is very important to see that meditation on retreat is very specific circumstances. And because of all these specific circumstances, you're going to experience meditation in a different way. It seems, it seems to me then you experience the depth of the practice. But because in a way, the conditions are very narrow, very narrow condition. And because of that, you can go into the depths. And in a way, that's why we do the condition in that way. But when you go back to your life, it seems to me what you do actually is go into the width of the practice. That instead of the practice going deep, it's going to go widely. And so when you sit, I would say when you sit at home, I would say you, your meditation can be deep for about a minute and a half. <laughs> because you sit, you find the posture, and you remember. And for a minute and a half, you're really there. And then, yesterday, yes, you know, later, yes. And so in a way, you won't be as concentrated, definitely not because the conditions are so different. But you sit at home, I feel, for three reasons. One is to stop. Because when we are in daily life, we are moving all the time. We are doing, and I think it's important to just stop. Again, we, we meditate, actually, I feel, to remind ourselves of our value, that we value wisdom and compassion, we value mindfulness, and third, we try to cultivate concentration and inquiry, but it won't be like on retreat. So I totally agree with you. I experience the same thing. Well, if I could follow up. So, I mean, there is a question because I wonder, well, is there a more productive way to practice at home? Like, I just finished a book called The 
Wisdom of Forgiveness by the Dalai Lama. It's actually written by a Chinese journalist who spent a lot of time with him over a number of years. But you get insight into what he does every day. So what he does every day is for two or three or four hours, he meditates and he does his rituals. Um, sort of inspiring. I thought, well, maybe the problem is you're only giving 45 minutes a day to it. Maybe what you need to do is give, you know, two hours a day to it. Maybe the 45 minutes just isn't enough. I mean, some, sometimes it seems like more than enough, and other times it seems okay, like you said, like I stopped. And, and then what I'm getting from your saying is that after the retreat, the meditation is there, Meditation is okay. It's supportive. It seems like it's more about um, living, living kindly, and um, following the precepts. And um, um, and then I can, I, and then I can, in my experience, uh, like when something has gone wrong, suddenly sometimes a meditation is good because it's really more like a contemplative meditation. You know, like uh, oh, this problem really happened, or oh, I hurt person or this person was hurt by me or I, you know I, I got confused and so then suddenly there's a little more juice to the uh, mm -hmm. experience yeah no you see I think what is very important is to not reduce the meditation to just sitting at home I would say when you sit 45 minutes I think this is a lot I think this is very good I mean if you want to sit two hours this is fine too but I think 45 minutes is very good already to me, what is important in daily life is actually to do what I would call informal meditation. That actually the way you work, the way you listen. Listening, I think, is a great meditation. The way you talk, the way you are with the children, the way you are riding the bus, whatever you do, this becomes the meditation. And then, of course, if you get very agitated, then you stop, go back to the breath for a minute, then you use a meditation in a more formal way. But to me, what is important is that we develop creative awareness here, and then we can't leave it here. We have to take it with us in our daily life. We have to apply it. We have to, to do it. We have to, you know, a bit. That, to me, is a meditation. So it's not just, you know, a 45 minutes. It's a whole day. And when you go to bed, I would meditate. When you wake up, you meditate, so in a way you bring all this in your life. So, to me, it's everything. It's everything in my life. And sitting here helps that everything in my life. Uh, there was there. Well, I think in terms of traditionally, it would be seen that no doubt about the three jewels, no doubt about the Buddha, about his teaching, about the Sangha. Personally, the way I would interpret it is more no doubt about our potential. So to me, at that level is when we get a certain level of self-confidence. And Stephen will talk more about this later, about becoming a person which is a very important part of the Buddha's teaching. It doesn't mean that you might not have question. You see, when you make a mistake, then you're not sure. What should I have done different? 
So I think you can have, you know, what is regular doubt. But I think over time, and that's why I talk when this posture of being stable and open, to me this is actually a posture of self-confidence. That generally I am a relatively able person. That generally I can handle things. Like in, in the way I was with uh, what happened with my grandmother, I could have fall, fallen apart thinking, ah, I can't deal with it. Or you can think, yes, I can do this. You see, it's kind of a movement. And to me, this is one of great gifts of the meditation, that over time you become more confident. You appreciate more your good quality, and by knowing better your difficult quality, you are better able to deal with them. So I would say in general, yes, a certain doubt about ourselves, a certain kind of devalorizing start to dissipate. Yes? Um, the reason I practice isn't because I'm, I'm waiting for something to happen or I'm going to get something. To me, I, to me, it seems like I'm training myself to be present. And so meditation is a way to, to come back to here again and again and again, so that in my life I can be free to see what's really happening instead of being, you know, dragged and torn by this, by what I call conditioning, you know. Oh, you know, you know so I, here at Sashin or at the retreat, I get to be in a, in a very controlled, safe environment so I can be bothered in a really controlled, safe <laughs> environment so I can be with being bothered and just see it just dissipates like smoke if I'm really with it. Not that I want it to disappear, but just to be with all these things. All these things that come up are like sort of a model of my life. And then, you know, it's just a, an opportunity to, to really be present, be present, be present. Because everything here is helping me do that. In fact, there's another monastery I go to where they're watching you and they'll write you a little note. So that if you think, oh, I, I was, I'm following the program, I'm here on time, you'll get a little note. Oh, I was late. Oh, I didn't do this. Not like anything wrong, because nothing's wrong, but just to get that. We are, you know, to be right here. So that's the support of it. No, no, I, I w- personally I would agree, and I think that's what Sharda very much was talking about yesterday. This, that when you, through the meditation, is actually a tool. That's why personally I see the meditation as a tool of awareness. That actually when we, we flee so much from, from reality, we flee so much from the present. I, I don't know why but we do this. When actually, if we're really present, things are generally so much easier. Okay, I mean, you might be bored. Okay, this is boredom. It will pass. Or this is ease. Okay, let's be at ease. Or this is fear. I mean, this is the way I was kind of helped myself with fear because I was very afraid of the dark. And then my, I asked my teacher about that. He said, go back to the question. So I thought, okay, this is magical talisman. I'm going to be protected <laughs> against a bad thing out there. But then as soon as I came back to the question, I came back to the moment. And in that moment, there was no bad guy out there trying to kill me because I was in the middle of nowhere who would know about me. So no, I would, I would agree that in a way the meditation, being able to be in this safe environment and being able to, to be with whatever arises and really knowing it, that actually helps us in the daily life to really kind of, oh yeah, I can be aware. Okay. Whatever happens, if, if there's sadness, grief, if I'm really disturbed by something, a lot of times it's because 
I'm not noticing, I'm disturbed. And then once I can go, oh, man, I'm really angry, or the unacceptable kind of things. And then once, once I'm like, oh, well, okay, gee, I'm jealous, or all these kind of uncomfortable, pleasant things. Once I notice it, it's, it's so much better. Mm -hmm. And then I'm really awake, and it seems like whatever happens, that that's the best, I'm, the, I'm in the best situation, if there's a best, to be able to, to do the, what's best for everyone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, all right, then. I just wanted to suggest, because what I do, I'm a new meditator, kind of, like you hear in some. I read. You know, I have books, and I chip away at them before I do my meditation. So that gets me into it. You know, it helps me to really get into it. So I just wanted to throw that out. Sure, I'm sure everybody has different ways to help themselves. That's a good one. Yes? This is, this is a difficult one, because you see, I think there is two things there. Let's, say, let's, let's try to have an example, because it's a little hard to talk in a... Let's say you have an experience, you sit in meditation, and suddenly you have this amazing feeling that everybody as Buddha nature. In that moment, you totally know it. You totally know your Buddha nature, and you totally know the Buddha nature of everybody. There is, there is no 
exception. Everybody. And in a way, the experience itself is fairly intense because you have never experienced this before in that way. And at the same time, it's very new. But once that feeling pass or that state pass, in a way what you have is a memory of an intense state, which it seems to me possibly you cannot experience in exactly the same way because it's not going to be new anymore. So you can experience another new feeling, of course. But what you know is in a way that everybody has a Buddha nature. And so I think you might easily forget it, especially if they give you a hard time. (laughs) Or if you feel really depressed or upset, you might forget you have it too. And it is very hard at that moment to tell yourself, but I have the Buddha nature. You know, it's strange. But the fact that you have known it actually makes a little of a difference. But I think that's why I think these states are very tricky because I am not sure, apart from, rem- apart from reminding yourself in words, everybody has a Buddha nature. I do have the Buddha nature. Possibly that might help. But it will never, I think, have the same intensity. So it's kind of like part of it can become organic without us doing anything. And part of it seems to, in a way, get forgotten because of the patterns and the habits. It's what I would say is when when they happen, to see them for what it is and not for what we want them to be. Because personally, I think even, even if we have no goal, even if we meditate without any goal, we still have a little kind of, you know, little stacked up agenda. (laughs) And so this mystical state really answer to this agenda. And so I think the problem is actually not with the states. It's actually more with the agenda. Because I think it's the agenda which is attaching itself to it. Not, not the state itself, I feel. You know, so I think it's more to see, to see our longing. You know, the, the Stephen was talking about this longing. We have this longing. And in a way, to not get caught by the longing, but to, to befriend with it, to accept. Yeah, I get a little excited when I feel different. And to, yeah, I mean, it's nice to feel different. And also, I cannot feel like this all the time. Personally, I think it would be too intense. I mean, I'm sure some people might want that all the time. Personally, I think this is a bit too intense, you know. As we say in French, beauty is not eaten in salad. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I don't know if it makes sense, but basically the French, liking their food, say, well, it's better to have a good cook than a beautiful wife. 
<laughs> because beauty won't feed you, but I think it's a bit the same. You know, this intense state, I mean, they're very wonderful, but I'm not sure they're kind of, you know, very good for, you know, everyday life. It's kind of a little stressed. <laughs> so I think, you know, to, to kind of play with them, to look at them, maybe in a different way. Uh, okay. I mean, if you can have it, and if you can continue with it, if you can go to the bakery with it, if you can help your grandmother with it, if you can uh, be tortured with it. If you see, we live in an extremely comfortable world. I think it's very easy to say this. If you have not, in a way, I think, yes. I think, you see, you have to, to be very careful about what I'm talking about. I feel if we cultivate awareness, if you're very aware, there can be a certain luminosity to your experience, but not because everything is bright, but because a veil of your attachment, because a veil of your patterns has disappeared. This is very different than when I talk about mystical experience. This is something very different. Mystical experience, in my experience, is something which is very intense. And in that intensity, as far as I have myself experienced, as far as I have observed it in other people, it is generally not something you can live with at that level. Of course, you can try. You see, this is a thing. You can try. Try it out for yourself. But I think, in a way, in the meditation process, there are many different experiences. And so I think it just depends what one is talking about.
not it's not always the same, you know, it's not the I don't I don't I feel at one point you may be so overwhelmed by the beauty of everything, just in one particular way that you overlook, that you're that you're on the floor crying for hours, you know? And you can't live like that. You're completely right. I'm not gonna go all I'm not gonna go around town because I wouldn't be able to. But the attachment of that I guess the attachment I'm Relinquishing the attachment of that makes every moment beautiful in its own if it, in its own condition, outside of your conditions. So, I really think that you can apply. I guess the luminosity would be the relinquishment of all attachments because then everything is is so vivid and so beautiful in its own name, and not and it's not you aren't buying into that. So, a mystical experience, they're fun to have, but perhaps you're right. I think we have to stop here because actually we are running a little and I have to make an announcement but thank you, thank you everybody and uh, the announcement is that we've uh, this is about the discussion in the afternoon with Stephen and actually the writing notes worked in Switzerland with 30 people but I don't think it's working so well in America with 60 people. So Stephen now would suggest that the people who find it easy to talk in a group, then if, if you have a question, still you could write it down so you don't think about it all day and put it under your cushion. But when the discussion time comes, you can, in a way, say it. But the people really have difficulty talking in a group then can put their note on the board. And then what Stephen wants to do is that for the first 30 minutes of the discussion, it will be just, you know, speaking. People will just speak their question or their comments. And then the last 15 minutes, he will look uh, from the note. So it will be a little more interactive. And also, he, because he, I mean, there is only 45 minutes. He can't just, <laughs> it's too many notes. Sorry about that. And thank you for your comprehension. This talk was given by Martine Bachelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 23, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.